0: Father, as we open your word together, please give us open hearts and minds to receive what you have for us. Let your Holy Spirit work in our lives and make this a supernatural encounter that we might be more like Jesus. We ask it in his name. Amen. So, back in... 1871 was the first time that a president of the United States was arrested, and it was for speeding. You might think to yourself, but Pastor, cars were not invented yet. That is true. He was speeding in a horse and buggy. Not joking. (laughs) You see, Ulysses S. Grant grew up around horses. He loved riding horses, and he loved, quote, to ride fast, even through the city. So I'm gonna put up a picture. On the, your left is Ulysses S. Grant, and on your right is a man named William West. He's a veteran who fought with the All Black Union Regiment during the Civil War. He started working for the DC police in 1871. And his lieutenant had asked him to keep an eye on speeding carriages, especially going to and from the races. Apparently, there were a bunch of enthusiasts that liked to race their horse and buggy up and down the streets, not unlike you have today with cars. So, while doing that, Officer West stopped President Grant because he had sped by a crowd who ironically and somewhat tragically were talking about a recent carriage accident where someone speeding through the street had hit a mother and her six-year-old child. They were okay, but they were badly injured. So he hailed Grant, he got him to slow down, and when, he, when Grant was informed that he was violating the law by speeding, his response was, Was I going too fast? And the officer said, yes, you were going too fast. And then Grant went ahead and, well, he put it onto his horses. He said, you just can't hold these animals back. But he promised he would not do it again. The next day, he was speeding in the exact same area, and the same officer, it took him a block to get him to catch up to him and get him to slow down, and he got him finally, and... Grant had nothing to say, he was going to be taken to the station, which he was, but this line right here, the officer said to him, I am very sorry, Mr. President, to have to do it, for you are the chief of the nation, and I am nothing but a policeman, but duty is duty, sir, and I have to place you under arrest, and he took him to the police station. Ultimately, he would just pay a fine, and things would go on, but he was arrested and taken in. But that line right there, I'm very sorry, Mr. President, I am nothing but a policeman, but I still have to arrest you. I want to talk about something today, you can go ahead, and that comes out of our Palm Sunday reading, and it is, who is Jesus and What kinds of things is he forced to do or not forced to do? What kind of laws does he fall under? You know, if we look at our world today, we all know rich people often get away with things that poor people might not. Not all of them. Some of them do get caught and some of them do get thrown in jail. But we know if you have money, you may be able to buy your way out of things. And yet, even some of those get caught. We know people are treated differently throughout our world throughout our culture. All of those things are there. My question this morning, what kinds of things does Jesus sit under? If an officer pulled him over, hopefully Jesus wasn't speeding, but you know, what kinds of things does he sit under? So, if you have your pew Bible, you can open it. To Matthew chapter 21. It is on page 1405 in the Pew Bible. We're going to go through this Palm Sunday reading, and I want to make two points about Jesus. And they are points that can be said about no other human being, presidents or not. Matthew 21, page 1405. Here is the first point about Jesus. And I will admit up front, this sounds like a very Sunday schoolish thing to say. Um, those of you who have been in church all your life, you'll be like, duh, why'd I show up for that? Um, I hope I can open it up a little bit. Jesus. Is in complete and absolute control. Jesus is in complete and absolute control. Here's our passage Matthew 21 and verse 1. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. All right, so just I want you to visualize this. Um, If you were in Jerusalem, and this were the mount where Jerusalem is at, and it sits on a mountain. You would go down into the Kidron Valley, and then you'd come up to four peaks. One of them is where Bethphage, this village, sits. It's about a mile or so from Jerusalem. And if you stopped at Bethphage, you could look across the Kidron Valley, and you could see Jerusalem. So he stops there, and he gives these instructions. Jesus said to two disciples, they're unnamed, go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her, a colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say the Lord needs them, and he, that person, will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. Say Say to daughter Zion, see your king comes to you. Gentle and riding on a donkey and on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. All right, so here's what's happening in the scene He's stopped, he's going into Jerusalem, and he's fulfilling prophecy very intentionally. Um, this isn't an accident. He is quoting from Zechariah 9 primarily. There's also part of Isaiah 50 in there. But primarily it's Zechariah 9. The king is going to ride a donkey into Jerusalem. And that's what he's doing. But here's what I want to point out. In this scene, Jesus is in control of every detail. So, number one... As they arrive, he says to the two, go do this. No explanation, nothing. Um, it's a kind of a weird request. Go to this village and take somebody's donkey and colt and bring them to me. He's never done that before. They just go off. We know from other accounts that when the disciples went over there, and by the way, it probably looked like they were trying to rip off the donkey and the colt. Um, that's why he gives them the other instruction. When he gets there, he takes them and they are Stopped. And they say the Lord has needs of it, need of it. And the person goes, okay. And so they, he takes them away. All the way through, it is a plan. It's not random. And it's all tied into him fulfilling scripture. He's orchestrating everything going on. But it's not just those things he's in control of. For three years, he's been ministering. And you know what he's been doing for three years? Telling people, don't make me king. Don't say who I am. Keep it a secret right now. Now he has decided on his timeline, I am going to present myself as king as I want to do it. And so he's going in in his way, in complete control. And it's not just that. It's everything throughout his ministry. I want to give you a few of examples of how Jesus is always in control of what's going on. Number one. He chose his disciples. That's not what most rabbis do. From the very beginning, most rabbis wait for disciples to come to them and ask. Jesus goes out and finds the people that he wants. And he says, follow me. Because he's in control. He stills a storm. mean, he's sitting in a boat, people are freaked out. And he just stands up and he says, stop. And the wind stops. Complete control. He waits two days for Lazarus to die instead of going where he could have healed him. But he actually waits. And then he goes and does what? Rise, come out of the tomb. Complete control. He stops a processional of a grieving mother because her child has died. And they're they're processing. And Jesus walks in the middle of it and says, stop. And then he raises the boy back to life. Complete control. Everything that he does. When they come to him, the religious leaders come and they try to trap him. And there's all these things that the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they all try to trick him, to manipulate him. He answers every one of their questions and puts them in their place to the point that they stop. They're like, we're never going to catch this guy in anything. He has all the answers. He is always in control. Even when they come for him in the garden. So... He never tries to use military force. But when his disciples jump out at the guards that come, he stops his disciples, he heals the man that they hurt, and then he gives himself up. And then he has the audacity to stand before Pilate, who is a Roman ruler. They have all authority. They have all the money. They have all the military might. He stands before Pilate and he says, you'd have no authority unless it was given to you. You can't do anything to me. Unless I let you. Every single thing, he is in control. Do you know there's never a point where Jesus said, oops? He never stumbles onto something and goes, oh, huh? I guess I should have known that. Never. And do you know that's what makes it so hard for us to understand? Because let me ask you. Are you in control of everything in your life? If you say yes, I really need to talk with you because <laughs> I want to know how you're doing it. I mean, everything. This morning when I got in the car to come here, I took my phone and I just set it on the, you know, like the console in between, and as I was letting it go, somehow I turned the camera on. And then I reached for it and I'm like, well, that's dumb, i got to turn the camera off. As I was turning the camera off, I turned the flashlight on. I'm like, what in the world? I can't even control setting my phone down. But I mean, just think about your life. Are you ever late to anything? <laughs> and is that on purpose? No, it's because we don't have control. Is every part of your house as clean as you would like it to be? There's people laughing, especially if you have kids, because um, we have no control. Hey, there's so many things we have no control over, or very little. And even when we think we have it, we don't. So, It reminded me of this. For multiple years in a row, I got my kids those little drones for Christmas. And every time we take these little drones, we bring them outside, and basically our entire time was spent doing one thing can we just get this stupid thing to fly? Because they were so out of control, and so you'd get it up in the air, and then you're like, and then it would crash. And like, if we could go more than five seconds without running this thing into a tree, we were doing great. That's what I feel like life is most of the time. I hardly ever feel like it's like this. This is a drone that my son got this year. Let me show you This drone. Never, never does it just, whoa, there we go. Come on, don't ruin my illustration, drone. Our drones never did this. (laughs) They were never under control like that. Jesus always is in control. Unlike anybody in our life, unlike the circumstances, and I think it makes makes it really hard for us to even know what that means that he's always in control. And here's the flip side. So one thing this drone does, which is kind of cool, is it reacts to your hand. You can move it around. The thing I will tell you about Jesus, he cannot be controlled. He is always in control. He can never be controlled. Go back into your text. I can't seem to turn this off. There we go. Like it's going to fly away on me because I'm not in control. Verse 8. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, and this is coming Out of the Psalms, um, specifically Psalm 118, and there's a whole thing called the Hillel Psalms. They originally started out as Psalms of crying out because Hosanna means save me or Lord save. And they started out as crying out for the Lord to come and rescue Israel. Over time, they also became celebratory. This is a combination of those things. They are shouting this out. But you need to know that the primary person they would shout this to is the Messiah, the Messianic King, come to save Israel. So they're shouting this out to him. Verse 10, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, who is this? The crowds answered, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus cannot be controlled, and I want to help you see that everybody in this scene and everybody in his life tries to control him. And now that may say, utterly ridiculous. How could you control Jesus? And yet they all are trying to control Jesus. So let me start with the ones who are spreading the cloaks and the palms, the branches. Here's the irony of Palm Sunday we celebrate with these, the palms. We have some when you leave, if you want to take one with you. We have one up on the cross. This is what we do. Sometimes you'll come into an Anglican service or a Catholic service, and there'll be a procession where people are carrying the palms around. Um, do you know what you hardly ever see in a church? A donkey. But do you know the donkey actually represented who Jesus was and not the palms? Do you know what the palms were? They were a hearken back to Judas Maccabeus. Who led a military attack to retake Jerusalem in the third century BC? That's where they come from. Do you know what they're doing by laying the palms out? They are saying, You are our king, like Judas Maccabeus, go in and take over the Romans. It is a military gesture of victory and conquering. So they are trying to get Jesus to do what? What they want. They want the Romans kicked out. They want to rule themselves. They want the kingdom to come. Now, his disciples, they aren't any better. They basically want the same thing. Do you know that three times Jesus has told them already when we get to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed and I'm going to die? They so don't get this. When they are at Bethphage, could you imagine Jesus looking over Jerusalem? And if you actually understood that he was going to be betrayed and killed, What would you be doing in that moment? Oh, no, we're here. Like, there it is. That's where we're going. No, they don't even care. In fact, you know what they're doing right before that scene? James and John are trying to get Jesus to make them co-rulers. Put me on your left and your right when you come in your kingdom. Because that's what they're focused on. Just like everybody else in the crowds. They want their stuff. And it's not just them. So there's this interesting line at the end where when when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred. Um, That translation is not strong enough. It's the word you would use for earthquakes. It means quaked. Like they're shaking in their boots. Why? Because here comes somebody that is going to disrupt everything and possibly being the Romans down on them. They're proclaiming him as king. There's only one king at Caesar. Here's the question. Who is this, they ask? Notice the answer. The crowds, who are the ones that have been with him, who have been following him, the crowds say, this is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Hey, there's a rivalry going on between Jerusalem and Galilee. Because Jerusalem, that's where the temple is. That's the holy place. That is where the, the religious leaders are. They are the best. Then there's Galilee. Second-class Jews. Well, guess what? Guess what they're shouting right now? Messiah comes from Galilee. We have him. He's ours, not yours. Even they are trying to control him. Raise up our reputation because Messiah comes from here. Now, to say something that's almost cruel, and yet I just want you to see it, it's everybody. Even the poor who are following him around are trying to control him. Do you know what happens after he feeds the 5,000? He goes to the other side of the lake. They all run after him. And Jesus makes this comment. You're only coming after me because you want more food. You want more miracles. What you want is for me to end hunger. That's what you're asking for. You're not actually here because of me. You're here so I can do this for you. Do you know what he does when he goes into Jerusalem? None of those things. Nobody can control him. Back when my daughter was eight, and my first son was three, my wife and I were having a religious discussion with them. And we were talking about this topic, peace with God, which is a great topic. And in fact, everything we're doing in Holy Week is about peace with God, finding peace with God. And as we're having this discussion, my daughter at eight, who has always been insightful and thoughtful, says to us, Sometimes I feel like God might be angry with me because I have questions about my faith. And my wife immediately jumped in and she said, God is not angry with you. You can have those kinds of questions. We can talk to God about these things. He's not angry with you. If anything, sometimes I think God can actually feel a certain amount of hurt because he loves us so much that he wants us not to doubt him but to trust him and lean into him. Well, we looked at our three-year-old, and he was giving us a look like, what in the world are you guys talking about? (laughs) And and my wife, who's also very insightful, noticed this. And she said, hey, buddy, let me see if I can explain this. Sometimes God gets hurt. And again, he's like, what? (laughs) And she said, okay, so my my 12-year-old loves his cat and has loved his cat all his life. His cat is 12 just like he is. And so my wife said, You know how sometimes your cat might scratch you and you get a little bit of a hurt? And he's looking and he goes, God has a cat? And my wife went, n- n- No, 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 it's not that. And he goes, Jesus has a cat? Like, no, 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 it's, and she proceeded, No, it's, it's, like, it's like how that hurts you a little bit. It can kind of hurt God, like in his heart. Um, and, and he got this look like, Oh, maybe he was getting it. And he goes, why doesn't God have a cat? Notice what's happening. In his world, that cat was so important. He just He was so excited that God had one. And then he's like, wait, no, God has to have one. How can God not have a cat? Because that is exactly what we do even as adults. Whatever is most important to us, It's what we think God should be doing. It's what we think God should be fixing. And please don't get me wrong. Some of our things are really big. I would love for God to stop world hunger. I'd love for him to stop war. I'd love for him to stop some of the terrible, awful tragedies that go on. But he's not doing that most of the time. And here's where it comes down to. We cannot force him to do what we want. When he came into Jerusalem, he had a mission. And if you believe, and listen to this, hear this, if you believe in the goodness of God, the highest good that God could do was to save our souls. Was to make eternity possible. To make a new heavens and a new earth possible. And that is what he did. He could have gone into Jerusalem and done all kinds of stuff to make it all better. And instead, he went into Jerusalem. He didn't attack the Romans. He turned over the tables of the Jews. We need to be careful what we wish for. Because God is far more interested at times in cleaning out his own house than he is the world out there. Because the world out there, he wants to show his love and his grace and bring them to faith. So here's the thing about God. Here's the thing about Christ as he comes in. He is in control and he cannot be controlled. No matter what we may want. And here's what our option is. We can choose to ask the questions, to be hurt by some of the most difficult things that happen in life. Don't just say, oh, it doesn't bother me. We can feel those things. We can cry out to God and then we can make a choice. Will we hold on to our way of doing things, or will we trust there is a goodness and a love in God that we cannot fathom, but it is there. And we can either trust that and lean into it, or we can continue holding on to the hurt and the pain and the questions Not telling you you're going to get an answer. A lot of times you're not. Can you trust him anyway because of what we know about him? A number of years ago, we were at Hurricane Harbor. And there's a section in Hurricane Harbor, which is a giant water park in Texas. And in Hurricane Harbor there's this area where you can walk across tires that are in water. You can imagine how precarious those are. But they have a rope that goes all the way across the top. And so you can hold on to this rope, but it's kind of low and then you're balancing yourself going across. It is still very hard to do. But my daughter did it. <laughs> I don't know if you remember doing it or not. You're pretty young. But you went all the way across. Um, and and you, you could have been like six. You're, you're pretty young. But when you get to the end, there's a gap to step from the tire to the shore. There's a gap. And you could see it in her eyes. Her legs are short. <laughs> and like she was trying to figure out, she couldn't get it. So I reached out a hand and I'm like, grab my hand. I'll help you across. But in order to take my hand... She had to let go. I couldn't pull her. She's like this. (laughs) I mean, just petrified. And it's like, you either trust me and let me get you across, or you trust you. It's the same option you have today. It's the same option they have. You trust him or you trust you. Let's pray. Father, I don't make light of any of our struggles, our challenges, because I know they're real, I've had my own. And I know that you are not afraid of people crying out to you and asking why. We see it in your word. Lord, my prayer this morning is that as we go through those times and as we go through all of our life, we will let you be the king you have defined. And we will trust that. We will let go of the control we think we have of our own lives, and completely trust you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.